0: Welcome to the Cybersecurity TLDR show, where we save you time by providing you the too long, didn't read summary of cybersecurity topics and news. You can find us on YouTube through video and all the popular podcasting platforms for audio on the go. Now let's get over to your host, John Good. Welcome, welcome, welcome. I am your host, John Good, and this is where we're going to do the threat intel briefing for the week of August 28th, 2022 through. September 3rd of 2022. If you're watching on YouTube, I appreciate it. Make sure to like, comment, and subscribe. Let me know how you're enjoying it. If you think there's anything that we can do better, uh, if you have any thoughts on any of the articles or anything that we cover in this episode. Reminder, we are on all the popular podcasting platforms. So if you're listening on there, make sure to subscribe as well and leave us a review. Again, let me know how we're doing. Let me know if there's things that you want to see that we're not doing. And if you have any overall thoughts on the articles and things that we cover, also check out the description. There is going to be a link to all of the show notes, so all the articles that we cover. And if you want to read a little bit more, because obviously we don't get a deep dive on a lot of the technical stuff, on the nitty gritty kind of details, but uh, the articles will be in there as well for you. So without any further delay, let's go ahead and jump into the articles for this week. So. The very first one, I'm sure you've probably heard about this if you've been following the news in cybersecurity, but hackers breached LastPass developer system to steal source code. So a password management service, LastPass, confirmed a security incident that resulted in the theft of certain source code and technical information. If you're not familiar with what LastPass is, it's basically a password manager. So you can go in there, you have one password to unlock, basically a vault, and that vault has all of your passwords. So you can make them super secure. And you don't have to remember these 15, 20, 30 digit or character long passwords, and it will just automatically fill those in. So that's what LastPass is. Now, the security breach is said to have occurred two weeks ago, targeting its development environment. No customer data or encrypted passwords were accessed, uh, although the company provided no further details regarding the hack and what source code was stolen. There's a quote, an unauthorized party gained access to portions of the LastPass development environment through a single compromised developer account. And took portions of source code and some proprietary LastPass technical information, LastPass CEO Karim Toba said. Amidst ongoing investigations and in the incident, the company said it has engaged the services of a leading cybersecurity and forensics firm and that it implemented additional countermeasures. So kind of looking at this, you know, from a top scale, uh, kind of a top down view, a high level view. Anytime there's an incident and it's very serious, it involves, you know, customer data and things like that, it is wise to bring in an external third party to kind of do an evaluation, right? You want to know what really happened. I mean, obviously internally, you want to be able to do forensics and things like that. But, you know, bringing in that external party is just a very unbiased kind of view of what happened and they can kind of dig into things and really see, you know, what happened, what was accessed. Kind of the path that was taken and all that kind of stuff, and help you you know ultimately improve your security so that's you know very standard if it involves something that is illegal or you know some kind of a uh, legal act that breaks a law or something like that, then you would obviously engage like the FBI or you know whatever country you're in uh, law enforcement and they could help as well and kind of secure a lot of that evidence but um, you know with LastPass, the idea really is that you know, a lot of this stuff is encrypted, right? Like your, your passwords are encrypted and that's kind of where, you know, where my head went, right? Because with encryption, the idea is that the algorithms and the math and stuff behind it, you know, in a lot of cases it is, you know, it's open, right? Like you can, uh, you can view that information and that's what makes it so secure because if I can see, you know, your algorithms or how things are kind of encrypted and I can't break it. That's a very secure encryption algorithm. And that's really what you know, that makes me think of. Password managers you know, are inherently good because passwords are a weak security uh, control. They're a weak authentication mechanism. I don't care who you are. A password is a weak authentication measure, especially if it's just by itself we've known that, right? Like there has been so much research and so much exposure on that idea. And, you know, that's why we started doing things like multi-factor authentication and putting those into our different login and authentication mechanisms, because you need something. If you're going to use a password, you have to have something else. You just can't use a, pa- you can't just use a password because it's just, it's so easy to crack passwords these days. And especially looking ahead you know at something like quantum computing that idea is supposed to significantly reduce the time that it takes to crack passwords and solve this stuff you know that that's been one of the benefits traditionally is that a longer password it's very hard to crack like it takes a long time that's the idea of having a complex password and a longer password and you know quantum computing is you know obviously decreasing that idea so any kind of password manager is generally good but The idea is that the encryption has to be really strong that they're using. Uh, LastPass is one of the major brands as far as password managers, especially on the consumer side. And, you know, I, I don't see anything too crazy with this. You know, obviously a developer account, you know, that's, you know, that that's something you want to take a deeper look at for sure. Um, But Ideally, you know, hopefully LastPass is very secure and everything, you know, everything else is kind of just taken care of. Encryption isn't weak. And, you know, then that becomes really more of a company issue of kind of losing some of that uh, proprietary information. So I think we'll see, you know, probably more fallout from this just as far as um, or more information about this and just kind of how this is going to evolve. Uh, what they're doing to change things, if they are, and you know, it's an ongoing thing. We'll find out more, but um, this is just a big deal because it does impact a lot of people. Again, because they are a major provider for um, for password managers, so we'll watch this. Uh, next article goes like along with kind of what I was saying about quantum computing. CISA prepares for quantum computers, not when hackers use them. Although quantum computing is not commercially available, CISA, the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, urges organizations to prepare for the dawn of this new age, which is expected to bring groundbreaking changes in cryptography and how we protect our secrets. The agency published a paper earlier this week calling for leaders to start preparing for the migration to stronger secret guarding systems, exploring risk mitigation methods, and participating in developing new standards. So this is kind of what I was saying, right? You know, with cryptography and passwords and all this kind of stuff, typically longer, more secure algorithms, you know, all that stuff matters, right? The idea is to make it so difficult and take so much time to decrypt some of this information that it's just not feasible or useful by the time you're actually able to do that. That's the idea, right? That, that in itself is a very secure encryption algorithm and encryption setup, right? Uh, and cryptography setup. And so again, quantum computing, the idea is that it just, there is so much power. There is immense computing power that you can, you know, so quickly uh, decrypt that cryptography or that encryption. So it dramatically decreases that time. You know, obviously that's a serious issue, especially because there are still so many companies and applications and things like that, that are using passwords to actually secure authentication. And, you know, obviously a lot of them are slow to even adopt multi-factor authentication or some kind of, you know, not necessarily like a pin or a token or something like that, but just some other factor. So biometrics or whatever the case is, but, you know, it'll be interesting to see how far, uh, how fast quantum computing comes along and becomes mainstream versus how long it takes us to kind of prepare. And get ready to protect and defend against that kind of capability. You know, obviously nation states and things like that, they're going to have access to this before, you know, they probably already do have access to this. Right. But, um, you know, it, it only takes so much time for this stuff to become mainstream. Right. I mean, look at computers and how fast those have come along as far as their processing power and their, their capability. And, you know, it, it can go very quick. Technology moves very, very fast right now. So that'll be another interesting thing to watch. You know, my guess is five, 10 years, you know, 20 years. I don't, I don't know exactly where that, that is going to come into play, but it's not going to probably be like next year, right? Or in six months. It's, it's going to take probably a little bit of time. But, uh, and especially to get it mainstream, it's going to take, you know, it's not, going to, it's not going to be days, right? Like it's going to take a little bit of time. But definitely an interesting area to kind of track, right? Next article, California AG looks ahead to other data privacy violations after $1.2 million fine for a Sephora fine. California's attorney general Rob Bonta is already looking ahead to the next potential violations of the California Consumer Privacy Act, the CCPA, after issuing the state's first fine of $1.2 million to Paris-based makeup giant Sephora this week. While announcing the fine, which was part of a settlement with Sephora to resolve allegations for uh, uh, the company violated the CCPA, Bonta said that he also notices, uh, sent notices to a number of businesses due to alleged noncompliance when it comes to processing consumer opt-out requests. So if you don't live in the U.S., you know, the U.S. is kind of slow as far as like privacy regulations, especially when we compare us to uh, like Europe, right? Europe is much more on top of the game as far as protecting consumer privacy. Typically in the U S where a lot of companies are like, Oh yeah, just like give us this piece of information and then give us this piece of information. And then we kind of just gather a ton of it. And, you know, traditionally there hasn't been a ton of protection on a lot of that information, which is kind of why we find ourselves in the situation that we're in. But, um, you know, what we're starting to see is a lot of states in the U S are starting to kind of create their own privacy regulations. And that's obviously very interesting. We don't have a ton of, um, a ton of federal regulations. So by the, the nation government, the U S government, but, uh, let's see what else does it say. Bonta's office did not respond to requests about which companies were issued the notices, but said that a statement that businesses have 30 days to rectify the violations or face a similar uh, fate similar to Sephora. The violations center around the processing of consumer requests made through global privacy controls that allow people to opt out of on, all online sales in one click. Many businesses attempt to get around this by making users click, click on opt-out links each time they visit a website. So basically the idea here is that if I go to a website and I'm assuming this probably has to be tracked to an account with you know a cookie and stuff like that, But the idea is that I go to a website like Sephora, I create an account, I'm supposed to be able to click some kind of opt out option, right? And then it should save that to my account and link it. So every time I come there, I'm not getting tracked, right? I've opted out of everything. But the issue here is that these companies are, uh, they are not storing that that identifier, right? Like that that setting, that value. And so when you come back, you have to do it again, or you're just opted in automatically, right? Like that's I guess that's what it sounds like is happening. And probably is happening with a lot of companies and a lot of places, businesses, things like that, because you know again in the US especially, it's not we're not the best at privacy for sure. Uh, and this is a, you know, a, um, an international company, right? This isn't just a us based company, but, um, same kind of idea, but obviously, you know, if you're going to a website and you click that, I want to opt out, you expect to permanently be opted out, right? You don't want to have to do it every time. And that's just, you know, that I would almost rather a company not give that option at all. Right? Like if you're it's kind of a deceitful practice. Honestly, like if you're going to tell a customer that they're going to do this and then they're completely opted out, but then they're not really when they come back, you know, to me, that is very deceiving. And I don't think that is acting in good faith for that customer because it's, you know, it's, you know, come on really, but, um, you know, companies do it. And I'm sure they're not the only ones that do that specific thing, but um, you know, obviously, this this attorney general is going after people. One point two million. I mean, that's probably for a company like Sephora, you know, like makeup and stuff like that. Um, it's probably not that much, right? Like, it's probably a very small amount of their annual revenue. But you know, still, it's it's a step in the right direction, right? You're gonna you're gonna start going after people for non compliance, and then you just have to be very consistent and very uh, consistent and persistent, right? Like you have to keep going after them, and you have to consistently, uh, consistently find them and you know penalize them. So I think that'll be another interesting area, just kind of how all this plays out. Because again, lots of states are kind of creating their own regulations and stuff, and it definitely, definitely will be interesting to kind of watch that. Uh, Microsoft nation-state Iranian hackers exploit Log4Shell against uh, Israel. Iranian hacker group Muddy Water, allegedly linked to the country's state intelligence service, continues to exploit the Log4j vulnerability to gain access to corporate networks in Israel amid an ongoing proxy war between the two countries, according to new research. Muddy Water's new attack, detected by Microsoft in late July, is another example of state sponsored operations exploiting Log4Shell, a vulnerability in the Java library Log4j used to add logging capabilities to web and desktop applications. Early in December, Microsoft discovered that nation state groups from China, Iran, North Korea, and Turkey were abusing Log4Shell to gain access to targeted networks. Muddy Water, for instance, used flaws in Log4J to exploit vulnerabilities in VMware apps, which were eventually patched. main reason why I want to bring this up is because remember when Log4Shell, when that came out, when it was originally launched? We talked about it on this channel a decent amount because it started to pop up more and more but we covered this when it first came out and was first released. And it seemed like the world was going to crash, right? And that everything was going to come down and all these companies were going to get impacted because, you know, it has to do with, um, I believe it was directly with Apache. And, you know, nothing really happened, right? It kind of lay dormant, but it was, you know, it was something that you had to address. And now we're starting to see this pop up, right? We're starting to see attackers actually go for it. So the reason why I wanted to bring this up is because that's what happens a lot of times, right? Attackers find out things that are an issue or that there are a vulnerability and they lay dormant for a while. They wait until there is really mass impact and people are kind of sleeping, uh, sleeping on it, right? Like they're, they're just not paying attention to it and then they really start going after it. So that's one thing that you have to be aware of as you find vulnerabilities in your organizations, in your networks, and your systems, and applications and things like that, is that you have to, you know, you can't just start um, avoiding some of these vulnerabilities and just ignoring them, right? Because even if they aren't, uh, if they don't really kind of turn out to be very serious, especially in the immediate, uh, the immediate um, timeframe, then, you know, they could six months, a year out, something like that, if you never fix them or address them, they could definitely come back to haunt you. And especially again, this one, this one affects a lot of organizations, a lot of applications and things like that, but it's just now kind of starting to pop up a little bit more than it was, or at least be in the news more, right? So definitely, uh, something that, you know, is important to watch. Next article, NATO investigates dark web leak of data stolen from missile vendor. NATO is investigating the leak of data reportedly stolen from a European European missile systems firm, which hackers have put up for sale on the dark web, according to a published report. The leaked data includes blueprints of weapons used by Ukraine in its current war with Russia. Integrated defense company MBDA Missile Systems, headquartered in France, has acknowledged that the data from its systems is a part of a cache being sold by threat actors on hacker forums after what appears to be a ransomware attack. Contradicting the cyber uh, attackers claims in their ads nothing up for grabs is classified information. MBDA said it added that the data was acquired from a compromised external hard drive, not the company's internal networks. So this is another thing that we covered before when it happened. Basically there was data on a hard drive that, uh, that, you know, got stolen, got compromised and there was data on it. Right. So important data and anytime it's dealing with like weapons or, military kinds of things. I mean, this is missiles obviously, but, you know, guns, uh vehicles, like tanks and stuff like that, satellites. Like all this stuff is very very closely watched. So, you know, something like this, if you're a company and you lose some of that critical information or somebody is able to steal or exfiltrate some of that information, you know, obviously you're going to be closely watched and scrutinized and under all kinds of, you know, uh, audits and things like that, trying to figure out what happened and why, and you might lose contracts over it. Right. Because that's a serious issue. And especially with like NATO, NATO, their job is to kind of help keep the peace, right? Like that's the idea. It's a bunch of countries that got together and they're trying to keep the peace and kind of just make sure that nothing goes crazy in the world, you know, at a, at a high level, that's what they're doing. And so you know, they're doing some investigations about this and, you know, it could be a really unfortunate end for this company, but, or at least a, a, unfortunate result. you know, in some way they could could be hurt by this. So, um, you know, it's always interesting seeing big companies like that get compromised or get hacked. And, um, again, when it's dealing with weapons and things like that, it's a very serious thing, very serious thing. White House to give aviation executives classified cyber threat briefing latest in series of industry meetings The White House has been conducting classified cybersecurity briefings with executives from critical infrastructure infrastructure sectors as part of an ongoing effort to compel industry leaders to invest more in their digital defenses The next meeting scheduled for September will be with, with executives from across the aviation industry a uh, senior uh, White House cybersecurity official told CyberScoop Biden administration F, uh, Biden administration's efforts to increase industry uh, support for upgrades to critical infrastructure formally launched last summer when the president signed a national security memorandum. And then uh, since then, senior White House officials have been quietly meeting with executives and leaders of trade groups as it works to shape forthcoming cybersecurity regulations for critical infrastructure operators. So, you know, in any country you have critical infrastructure, you have things like power plants and uh, for, you know, the U S and other countries too, uh, air travel and, uh, aviation, you know, those are critical infrastructure kind of things because they, they accomplish a lot of stuff, right? Like look at a company like UPS or FedEx or something like that, that ships a ton of stuff for everybody. Right. And all these companies and gets things, you know, everywhere, right. It gets them spread out to where they need to go. Um, but you know, governments are really, um, they, they watch those, those industries very, very closely because, you know, they can have a huge impact, right? We saw, you know, with, um, kind of with the things that have happened over the last couple of years, obviously air travel was extremely, uh, there was a lot less air travel and, you know, there was a real concern that, Airlines and things like that would go out of business because they weren't getting uh, they weren't getting the business that they had before, right? And it's you know a lot of them run kind of on debt almost because planes are expensive, the routes are expensive, and there's all kinds of financial issues that we've seen with those kind of industries. But you know those industries, critical infrastructure, they're they're just watched very closely, and again because they can cause a lot of damage if something goes wrong, right? So specifically with like aviation you know, since, um, since there's been incidents of like plane hijackings and things like that, that are really bad, or a lot of people go on planes and obviously it's very catastrophic when something really bad happens, you know, nobody wants to see anything bad happen. So if there is something that like the government knows about, and especially because we're in the, in the U S here, right. So if like the white house knows something could potentially happen or that there are new threats that they have to be aware of. You know, they, they're going to make sure that they know about them because it's in their best interest and everybody's best interest to make sure that they know what's going on. And obviously they're going to brief you know, senior leaders, executive leaders. They're not going to tell uh, the, end, uh, the end manufacturer technician or whatever you know, this high-level thing is going to happen, right? Like it's, it's going to be kind of led up to the, uh, left up to the leadership. But, you know, it's, it's a good thing to have those kind of relationships between the governments and industries, because, you know, you want to be able to share that information. You want to be able to set people up for success and not, especially not get people harmed, right? Like when it comes to human life, that's a serious issue. You can't just allow some of this stuff to happen, right? Like you have to take action. You have to prepare some of these people for information that they might not have otherwise. So that they can effectively do their job do their business mission and protect people keep people safe so it's interesting to see that specifically with airlines because obviously airlines have been around for a while so i don't necessarily know specifically why aviation right now is being talked about obviously cyber threats right because planes you don't want uh, a hacker to take over a uh a plane system because you know, there's all kinds of bad things that can happen or even like um, systems at like airports and like the towers and stuff like that. You know, all that stuff is a serious issue. So definitely interesting to see. Uh, Pirates, uh, pirate sites ban in Austria took down cloudflare CDN by mistake. Excessive and indiscriminate blocking is underway in Austria with internet service providers, ISPs complying to a court order to block pirate sites causing significant collateral damage. The legal case was launched by the copyright organization LSG, and I'm not going to even try to pronounce this. <laughs> uh, check out the article if you want to see the name. I, I don't know German, so, or uh, you know, <laughs> I just, I don't know how to say this. Uh, which convinced an Austrian court to block 14 websites for copyright law violations. Problem arising from this measure is that it, B- the bans, bans uh, also extended to specific IP addresses belonging to Cloudflare servers that support many other sites that don't violate copyright laws. Now, the next article kind of similar and kind of linked to this, Cloudflare probably won't terminate services for despicable sites. Cloudflare said on Wednesday that it's not likely to terminate services for controversial customers in the future following online protests. Asking the company to stop providing services to a site linked to hate and harassment. One of Cloudflare's popular security services is anti DDoS protection, which blocks attempts to flood a website with traffic in order to knock it offline. With Cloudflare's service, it's unlikely that Kiwi Farms, a site with a long history of harassment and is blamed for several suicide uh, su- uh, suicides, would be able to stay online. So, basically, overall, kind of the idea here is that. Uh, Specific specifically with the first article, you have Austrian government trying to kind of shut down different sites, different IPs, and things like that. And then, you know, you have uh, Cloudflare, who, you know, they basically they try to prevent DDoS and kind of traffic floods to websites. I mean, that's the general idea, right? They don't want um, you kind of put up this wall, so they prevent massive amounts of traffic going to some of these sites. We've seen services like this, you know, and specifically Cloudflare too, block a lot of these heavy traffic load attacks that have tried to be, uh, tried to be launched against, you know, various, various targets, various websites. And, um, you know, I think what they're trying to do really is they're trying to, um, not interject themselves into this, you know, kind of arena, right? They, they're just simply offering kind of the service that it really helps, you know, prevent websites from being taken down, right? Like they don't, they don't want to get into the business of, you know, trying to regulate or censor the the internet. and And I get that part, right? Because that's, you know, that's one thing that like social media is really, really getting hammered hard on right now is being responsible for actually censoring or um, preventing certain content from getting onto their platforms. And it's, although it's different, it's similar, right? Because now the social media platforms like Facebook and Instagram and Twitter and stuff like that, they're kind of getting into that Um, that arena and kind of getting on the hook for having to actually try to figure out a way to censor this stuff. You know, that's, that's a huge job, right? That's a massive job, but the difference is they're actually storing this information on their servers and in their, um, you know, in their storage uh, buckets or whatever they're using, right? Cloudflare isn't even storing this information, right? They're just, you know, they're just there offering kind of this basic uh, doorbell service, right? Um, They're kind of like the, yeah, they're kind of, that's a good comparison, I think. They're kind of like the doorbell, right? Like you have to go through them and they make sure you're not trying to overload a system and then they just kind of pass on the traffic or direct you where you need to go. So um, I think that will be interesting to kind of see how that plays out because Cloudflare actually um, you know they have a ton of customers. They are a major player in that space, and um, usually the major players kind of set the tone, right? Like those are the ones, the big guys are the ones that can fight back, and they can be like, you know, get out of here. Like we're gonna, we're not gonna comply with you. We're not gonna listen to you, and you know, come after us. We'll, we'll get our lawyers in the room. You get your lawyers, and you know, we'll go at it. So I think that's going to be an interesting thing in general. 'Cause there's really this um, you know, this overall sentiment to try to censor the internet or clean it up. I guess is a little bit more uh accurate way of how it's being described, because a lot of people are getting, you know, agitated and irritated with the kind of content that's out there because obviously the internet over the years has been kind of a wild wild west kind of setup. So you can just, you know, put whatever up and, you know, do whatever you want to do, right? Like that's been the idea. And now we're seeing things where, you know, people are getting offended and, um, you know, people are trying to take action to get websites down and certain content down. And, you know, well, this platform is censoring me, so we're going to go after them or this platform isn't censoring this kind of content. So we're going to go after them because they're not doing it our job. And man, it's a slippery, slippery slope. And I would not want to be in that game where you're trying to, um, you know, you're just a social media platform. Like that, that seems like a huge challenge to try to be involved with some of this stuff. So that, that sounds like a huge challenge to me. So good on them if they can figure it out, but I, you know, I don't want to be in that game. That sounds very, very challenging. So, uh, Google's open source bug bounty, uh, bug bounty aims to clamp down on supply chain attacks. Google has introduced a new vulnerability rewards program to pay researchers who find security flaws in in open source software or in the building blocks that the software is built on. So that's a key that I want you to focus on. It'll pay anywhere from $101 to $31,337 for information about bugs in projects like Angular, Golang, and Fuchsia, or for vulnerabilities in the third-party dependencies that are included in these projects code base. While it's important for Google to fix bugs on its own projects, um, the most inter- interesting part about this is the third-party dependencies. So I agree, right? So if you don't know what a bug bounty program is, basically it's this idea that a company will outsource uh, finding vulnerabilities and bugs and things like that in their code base, in their products, you know, whatever, right? Uh, and then they pay researchers or people who want to spend time doing this for their efforts, right? Like if they find something, they will pay you. And this can be a really lucrative area of cybersecurity and just, you know, tech in general is finding bugs because if you get good at it, you can make a ton of money. Obviously there's a small, um, a small crowd that do amazing in this area, but there's people that, you know, get a thousand dollars here, a thousand dollars there, $500, whatever. Like they make, you know some extra money on the side doing this, and if you're in cybersecurity or looking to get in cybersecurity, this is a great way to kind of get your feet wet and really contribute to the community and companies that could potentially hire you. So keep that in mind. But you know, typically, uh, it's about their product, right? Their product, their service, whoever the company is that has the platform or the the program, the bug bounty program. And in this case, Google also wants you to look for interactions and issues with these third-party kind of things, that's usually not the case, right? Like that's usually uh, not where the focus is. And so this is really interesting. Um, and obviously, you know, they're using third-party libraries and whatever, right? Like dependencies. But, um, you know, it's, it's interesting to see that. And I I wonder why that is maybe they're going to take that and try to use that as part of their business model or something. I don't know, but I mean, it's interesting. It's cool. It's a cool idea. I think that's a good idea because if you're going to incorporate other software that kind of starts getting into supply chain issues, right? And that can definitely help Google because if you're going to, um, if you're going to implement or use some other library or dependency, from somebody else some piece then i i think it makes a lot of sense to to allow people to test that because then that can help you kind of shore up your supply chain issues that you might have that you might not know about right and that's kind of another check on your supplier so that's a good thing because it's it's pretty challenging to uh you know to audit third parties directly right but if i if i or uh one of my researchers or somebody from a bug bounty program that I'm hosting can go in there and find issues that's useful to me as a company as somebody who is using uh other parts of a supply chain and as a cybersecurity person right as a professional that is just useful in my daily job so kudos to them i actually think that's a really good idea and uh you know i i want to see how that kind of plays out maybe uh, Maybe other companies will start doing that too. I think, especially if it's successful, I think we'll start seeing that, but it's definitely kind of a newer idea, at least as of right now. So that is the last article for this week. Again, you know, I want to thank you for joining me. This is your Threat Intel Briefing for August 28th, 2022 through September 3rd, 2022. I'm your host, John Good. If you're watching on YouTube, make sure to leave us a like, comment, and subscribe. Let us know if you enjoyed it. If you want to see something different, if you want to see other kind of content on the channel as well, all that stuff matters, let me know. If you're listening on podcasting platforms, make sure to subscribe and leave me a review as well. And then also check out the description of either the video on YouTube or if you're on podcasting platforms because I will leave a link to the show notes so you can look at these articles. Plus I'll have some other articles too that we didn't have time to cover, but that way you can get you know your full full enjoyment, full threat intel briefing. If you want to dive a little bit more into this stuff and you just don't want the, um, the top level kind of analysis of a lot of the stuff. But with that being said, I want to thank you for joining me. And, uh, if you're in the U.S., I hope you have a great holiday weekend and I will see you next time.